You're listening to Making Global Learning Universal, conversations about engaging diverse perspectives, collaboration, and complex problem-solving in higher education, on campus, online, in local communities, and abroad. I'm your host, Stephanie Dosher, Director of Global Learning Initiatives at Florida International University and co-author of Making Global Learning Universal, promoting inclusion and success for all. Even on a very personal level, engagement is so important. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's about just being able to look at somebody that you wouldn't normally connect with or talk to and actually be present with them in that moment and, and understand and empathize with what they're going through. And I think if the whole world was able to be a little bit more like that, we would see a, you know, a, a lot of improvement in these problems that we have. Those powerful words were spoken by nationally recognized anti-trafficking expert and FIU professor Sandy Scalani. Four years ago, Sandy developed a brand new global learning course, Sex Trafficking Building Solutions. The first semester she taught it, she had eight students enrolled. This past semester, she has over 100. Now, if you're currently teaching a course that focuses on a social issue, and you want to guide students towards hands-on solution-making? In this interview, Sandy lays out step-by-step how you can lead students from awareness to deep empathy, true collaboration, and innovative problem-solving and engagement. And if you're a professional working in the field and you want to bring your knowledge and expertise to college students, Sandy lays out the plan for doing just that. I really can't wait for you to hear about this course. So here's my conversation with Sandy. You know what just popped into mind was the first time we met each other. Yeah. Wasn't that in the library over here? It was in the library. Right. And if I remember correctly, our friend Nicole introduced us to one another because I remember her telling me, you've got to meet this woman. (laughs) Right. She said the same thing to me. Right. (laughs) She is so mission-focused, like like you are. Um, And and so we sat, and we just started riffing and talking about what each other does. So so maybe we can kind of go back to that, because I remember I was sharing about the work I do with Global Learning, and then you started to share with me about your work. And I think we need to let the world into <laughs> into your work. So yeah, and this was this was a great meeting because I was really brand new at FIU, and you were the first person I met that really I really got excited about what you were doing. Ah, that makes me feel really good, and and I felt immediately the same way. So let's get the world excited about the work that you that you do. So maybe if you could just tell us or share uh, what drives you, Sandy, because <laughs> you have a very strong motivating and, and driving force. Yeah. So, you know, I've, I've been doing uh, work in the field of uh, sex trafficking for 15 years. I, I have a very strong passion for um, justice and injustice issues. But when I look at kind of how to solve those issues, those so major social problems, a lot of that boils down to engagement. People's either lack of ability to engage with each other or engage the right community to be able to solve these problems and not have people slipping through the cracks and um, experiencing human rights abuses and things like that. So even on a very personal level, engagement is so important. 
You know, mm-hmm. it's it's about just being able to look at somebody that you wouldn't normally connect with or talk to and actually be present with them in that moment and and understand and empathize with what they're going through. And I think if the whole world was able to be a little bit more like that, we would see, a, you know, a, a lot of improvement in these problems that we have. And how how did you... How did you come to that realization that change happens not so much through the individual's efforts, but through that space between people, through that relationship and those, that connection making? You know, that was the, the years that I spent in the field working on issues of sex trafficking. I was building programs that provided services directly to girls that were teenagers that were being exploited in prostitution and sexually trafficked. And you can't do that job well without that connection um, because they've experienced so much adversity in their lives and they have so many vulnerabilities that when they are kind of scooped up by pimps and traffickers, um, manipulated, you know, really lured in with these promises of a better life and and all of these ways that they get, um, you know, drawn into trafficking, if you want to combat that, you have to have an actual connection with them. You have to be able to connect with them on more than just a surface level. And a lot of the system that's out there is is kind of bureaucratic or, you know, you have to do this particular intake and then get asked these questions and there's a process and then this person, then you meet up with that person and then maybe you have a prosecutor you have to talk to. And so in that process, it's really easy to lose um, the the personal aspect of it, that personal connection. And these are people that, they're the most vulnerable people. So a lot of times they've, they've lacked that connection. You know, they've had parents who are incarcerated or um, that, they, that they've been abusing drugs or that they, you know, just uh, generally dysfunctional abusive homes. Uh, so those personal connections, that sense of belonging is so integral to their healing. And it's something that they feel like they're getting from a trafficker a lot of times when they first meet them. Uh, so if you're going to help them get out, then you need to also be able to help them ha- replenish that sense of belonging in a healthy community. And to do that, you have to be present with them. There's there's no way around that. You have to be 100% um, walking in their shoes, empathizing with their situation, able to make that connection through engagement. Yeah, but how do you how do you what does that look like? Like how do you do that? If you come from a background that is so maybe 180 degrees different from that, you haven't experienced those ex- those particular experiences. You don't know what that experience is like. How do you transcend or you know get into another person's shoes? I mean, that's a really interesting question. You know, I think some people are more naturally empathetic than others, but I think empathy is something that you can also learn, and you learn it through experience. You know, your whole mission with the global learning is is really leading to that. I mean, that's you experience different points of view, you experience um, voices from survivors. You know, you kind of get all of those details of what that looks like. You know, what is that process? So it's not just, this is the thing. You know, when I'm, when I'm teaching my class, it's not just, this is what it is. I want you to know all about, it. I want you to know the root causes of it. You know, um, what is driving people, how the brain works, how does trauma impact the, the synapses in the brain? I go through into everything so that people get this full picture of 
what drives um, the people that they might be helping, the, the survivors or the victims, right? Right. So, okay, so now you're starting to get into, you built your own sense of empathy and your skill set around being present through your own professional experience. So now the question is, how do you do that in the classroom? So what courses are you infusing um, this study and this topic and this problem into? And then what are the kinds of experiences and content that you expose your students to, to build the sense of empathy that they can then apply in their own lives? Yeah, so here at FIU, I teach sex trafficking, building solutions. Uh, it's not just sex trafficking. I actually add the building solutions because it is an applied learning class where they are building solutions. And the very first thing I ask them to do is write a journal about their own uh, understanding of sex trafficking, uh, their own experiences, any kind of feelings, thoughts, concerns they have, because I want to get a sense of where my students are at. Um, at, right from the start. I want to know, you know, what kind of biases they come with or, or if they even, or if they're survivors themselves. And so I have had people in my class who have known people or have had family members who have been trafficked and things like that. And all of that's really important for, not just for me to know, but then I can shape the course and how I talk about certain things around those experiences. And we can bring out the expertise of the people in class themselves. And then it helps them to be able to, um, recognize themselves what they what they are bringing as mm -hmm. well you know that they probably know more than they think they do mm. um, and a lot of times throughout the course I start people start making connections you know they're like oh like I remember I saw that or oh this happened to me so you know I had one of my students say that you know now after she went through these courses she realized that she was almost um, she was there's an attempt at recruiting her into prostitution one time when she was at a bar she met somebody and she re she didn't go with them but she realized after after being in my class that that was what that was and she didn't know at the time oh wow so you're talking about like an almost beginning with an empathetic imaginary so starting to think about how do i think about these things what do i know maybe already know about it and also maybe even from the beginning i can imagine what this might be like starting that journey towards uh, being present and empathy in yeah. the journal yeah and and you know a lot of people almost everybody's experienced some kind of adversity so in the class throughout the class they can see themselves in different bits and pieces of what I'm teaching. Not necessarily that they're 100% vulnerable to sex trafficking, but you know, we have a whole class that we dedicate to uh, risk factors and vulnerabilities. And so we list a bunch of different vulnerabilities that we often see that lead to um, possibly becoming trafficked. And probably most of the students can relate to one or two of those. Exactly. You know, so. Let me ask you this, is, do you think there's a difference or that there could be a difference in the fact that Miami, South Florida, is ground zero for sex trafficking. I mean, just in the news a couple of days ago, there, there's been this uncovering of the massage parlors as, you know, as a vehicle for that. And we're reading about it in the newspaper every day, enmeshed and embedded, it's all around us. Do you think that makes a difference in the way students come to the course or the way you teach the course versus if it were taught in a city that didn't have this dynamic going on as much and it was about kind of the other? That's kind of a stump. <laughs> that might be a stumping question. No, you know, I don't know if that really matters much. I, what I have noticed over the years is the um, 
The difference in perception of what trafficking is. So I actually have a, several students now that have come in with their their concerns have been that they have been brought up in a culture where they were told to look out for vans and parking lots and things like that. So students are actually have been taught to be afraid of trafficking of themselves. Um, be, you know, oh. it's a younger generation. And that that was never the case when I was growing up. I mean, maybe abductions or something. Like right, that. right. But they but they are they're literally our society is literally framing it as human trafficking. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I find that really that's really interesting. So I think that maybe maybe that partially draws people to the class. Um, definitely people who have experienced it or have it in their family or her, who are looking to work with um, very at-risk populations. You know, I have a lot of psych majors, psych- psychology majors that come to my class, and that definitely draws them to the class. Um, so it's really... So after the journaling experience, how then do you kind of take students on the journey through the class? So the the class, the, the structure, the way that I set up the class, it I start with um, kind of theory, looking at theory, looking at what is it, what is human trafficking, the basic stuff, the 101, the definition of trafficking and all of that. Uh, and then we go into uh, like more, like the deeper theory, the how is race involved? How does, how does, um, how is race both a precursor and a factor that, you know, perpetuates trafficking? How is trafficking a gendered issue? Um, how does trafficking impact the LGBTQ community? Um, so we start looking at some of those more, those deeper systemic issues. And just to get a sense of how this is on a, uh, you know, on a root, at the root level, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. what goes into this? Not just your own individual, you have a history of abuse and all that stuff that makes you vulnerable, but you're also, if you have a history of abuse and you are um, in certain social groups that are disadvantaged and things like that, it's going to increase your vulnerability. You know, let's put it in perspective. That's what I'm trying to do. We're going we're gonna to frame it the yeah. right way. Yeah. We're going to get rid of the stereotypes. You know, let's stop being afraid of those vans and parking lots because half of those things you see on Facebook are hoaxes. Um, you know, let's frame this correctly and so that we understand who are the people more likely to be vulnerable. You know, right. it's not that it can't happen to anybody because it can, but most people use that as a marketing point for mm-hmm. their organizations. There are certain people that have more vulnerabilities than others. So after framing it correctly, um, then we talk about, go into a little bit about responses, policy responses. And I like to take like hot topics, hot issues, really fresh. So this year we were talking about FOSTA, which is the Fighting Online Sex Trafficking Act, which was signed last year in April um, and passed into law. And that basically, uh, we, we spend three days on this policy. We're analyzing it, okay? Now that you know something about trafficking and the s- systemic factors and all that stuff, is this policy response really going to be um, something that is going to be useful, that's going to have an impact? Or is it like a knee-jerk kind of measure that is going to do more harm to s- different kinds of people? Um, so let's look at how that will actually play out in the field. So my mm-hmm. experience being in the field, I've, I've had the unique perspective of watching legislation come through and then impact my clients in different ways. So. I can sit there in front of a piece of legislation and say, what is this going to do on the user end? Mm -hmm. And so then we have a debate about it. 
Um, so they learn about the legislation. They learn about technology and trafficking and all the vulnerabilities about that. Um, what the intent of the legislation was. We spent three days diving into this legislation. They do a debate um, and a reflection paper to prepare for the debate so that they know which position they stand in, on. And then the next uh, assignment after that is their policy paper that they write on the legislation. Okay, so let me ask you about that debate piece. Do you assign students perspectives or do they choose perspectives? How does that work? They choose. They choose. Yeah. And and so far, I haven't had everybody on one side. That's so. what, that's, that <laughs> yeah. was my question. Yeah. <laughs> um, usually, I'm intentionally picking very controversial issues because this field is complex. It's not black and white. You know, I think there's a lot of knee-jerk policy that's like, yay, we're all going to get on board with this, you know, with FOSTA. But the thing is, is that there are a lot of people out there, sex workers' rights um, and others, who have, feel, who have felt like this has been very detrimental to them and very damaging and harmful. The FOSTA legislation. Um, yeah, so I think that, and I think that all voices are important. So what students get out of that is the legitimacy of different perspectives on the same piece of legislation when you think about it from different, the impact on different stakeholders. So you're really getting that um, down the decision tree, secondary impacts, the interconnectedness of, in the complexity of the, of the situation. Yeah, yeah. And then in the policy paper, so they've done this work where they've researched, gotten some research around their own perspective that they went into the debate with. Do you give students in the policy paper, do you open the door or invite them to rethink their perspective after having engaged yeah, in absolutely. the debate? Yeah, I, 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 they come to my class um, and I understand when they come to my class that they have not learned how to write a policy paper yet. And they also have not learned how to write, you know, my final project yet. And we'll talk about that in a second. So I know that these are brand new skills for them. And I also know that this is um, very, these are very critical skills in the world. No matter what job you go into, what career you go into, you can, al you can always benefit from knowing how to write a really good two to three page influential policy type paper. There's an, so they do, you know, they, they tend to have a lot of um, research papers that they, that they know how to write and, you know, they could be very verbose and use a lot of unnecessary words and all of those um, things because they want to fill up page count and stuff. So, so because I know that they don't know how to write this, I actually spend a whole day talking about how to write policy papers. So it's not, I'm not just throwing them out there and say, hey, write this. Um, we talk about the purpose of the policy paper. We talk about um, the legislative process, like how it goes through committees, you know, da da da, da. Mm -hmm. um, Give them samples. I give them a checklist, you know, of what they should, if they marked everything off on the checklist, then they've done a great paper. Um, so they can have any opinion they want. They can change their opinion or not. It has to be related to the policy that we're discussing. This year has been FOSTA. Mm -hmm. So with regards to FOSTA, since it's already a law, it's not, it's not currently in debate. It's already a law, but it's a fresh law. And we've get, there's a lot of pushback. So what are the options for FOSTA? Well, you can ask your legislators to repeal it. You can ask, um, you, can sit, you can tell your legislators, you know what, I'm fully on board with this decision. Don't repeal it. Don't give in to these people. <laughs> like, I support you. Thank you very much, you know, with all of the supporting information. And, or you can say, you know, FOSTA is great, but I think it needs these amendments. And so it, and most of them are, are asking for amendments, which is fascinating because it's the hardest one <laughs> to do. <laughs> yeah. and, and it's also, um, 
it really relies on their creativity. What fact, what teacher doesn't want, I mean, that's the most exciting thing to hear that my students are choosing the hardest solution, <laughs> you know, to because they know it's the or they think it's the best one, and they're internally motivated. They have, they've bought into the need to to do the work. So okay, so um, so you've led them through thinking about this personally and getting them to st- and inviting students to start imagining and empathizing and connecting through the through the journaling, so they're digging into their own perspective. Then they take a look at the contextual systemic dynamics surrounding sex trafficking and the life of the the trafficked individual or the trafficker. And then you kind of go back again into perspective, but it's more of like a scholarly uh, or a research-based approach at that point because they're doing the debate and thinking about maybe rethinking their perspective again. And then where do they go? Right. So after that, then we dig into some professional skills in the field. Um, So we look at the the trauma, the impact. Uh, This is where the psych majors have a lot of fun. And then we look at kind of best practices in the field for solutions to this problem. So um, part of the best practices is our multidisciplinary team coordination that takes place. So you can't address the issue of sex trafficking without collaboration with many different disciplines. You need to be able to work together with prosecutors, with law enforcement, with therapists, you know, with with um, Department of Children and Families, everybody. And um, so after you're learning about the, the psychology and the impact, now we're now we go into solutions. We start with the learning about collaboration, multidisciplinary team building. And so we spend three days on collaboration. There's a wonderful book that we're reading on collaborating against human trafficking, which is, you know, brand new. It's hot off the presses and by Kristen Foote. And I was really happy that she wrote it. Wow. Because this is important. We've, we've been doing this work and we've been collaborating for years, but I've never seen anything engaging with the topic of collaboration around how are gender and race dynamics in our collaboration around this issue? Um, How do people have um, experienced power in these collaborations, who wins? You know, does law enforcement always win when there's a um, discrepancy and you know solution or what you're going to do with a client that you have? You know, so these are really quote, like working in groups to get something done is very um, it's very complicated and it's not an easy thing. And so, but most of the time, what happens is they get group projects and they're like, "This sucks," and and the teachers are we're all like, "But this is the real world," and that's it. We leave it at that, right? Right. We don't <laughs> equip them, as you do with the policy paper, with the skills to do the collaboration. Right. So so they read the book. They learn about collaboration. What does that mean? You could collaborate as a funder. You know, who has, mo- you know, who has money probably has power. Who has authority? Where does power come from? It comes from money. It comes from authority. It comes from influence. You know, how can you leverage those different kinds of um, power that you might have in a group in order to meet your goals in the we, they actually dive into that for three days, and we talk about the book uh, on the first day. On the second day, I bring the multidisciplinary team representatives from Miami's um, uh, from Miami that is working on that are working on child sex trafficking. So they're actually in the field on the ground collaborating, and they come to class and do. We have a panel, and they outline. I tell them, look, 
They've had, you know, 10 weeks of trafficking already. So no one-on-one stuff here. This goes, we're diving right into process. So we actually make a case flow chart, like how do cases go through in Miami? Who do they go to? You know, what happens next and all that stuff. How do they collaborate? What are the challenges for them collaborating? All of those things. Um, They love those opportunities to speak with the um, presenters that I bring in. And then on the, the third day after that, we have a mock multidisciplinary team staffing. So basically what that means is when you have a, a multidisciplinary team staffing, it's you have a case, um, like a client, who in this case is going to be a child who's been sexually trafficked, and it's literally they've just been referred or identified somewhere. Mm-hmm. And then you get everybody gets uh, the referral with a certain amount of case information, And then uh, you come together as a multidisciplinary team and you decide, what are we going to do with this person? What happens next? And so that's how it usually goes. So what I did with this, and this is like my baby. I love love this exercise. (laughs) Look, my students are always terrified with these exercises like the debate and the staffing. But afterwards, they are thrilled. They're like, that was the best thing ever. So I know that I'm doing the right thing. Um, so what I do is I have these case studies that I create, and they they from different perspectives. So I have one is from the law enforcement perspective, one is from child welfare, and the other is a therapist. And they all get the same referral information for this person, okay, for the child. And then they get uh, the follow up: what happened in your first interview, and what happened with your research. Now, law enforcement gets different research information than child welfare than the therapist. They have different. Um, first interviews with these kids because of who they are and what they ask they have different information okay they also have different agendas law enforcement wants to get the bad guy the therapist wants to protect their mental health so there's like different agendas that that are come to play and they that's written onto their case study you know what kind of agenda that they have to focus on Um, and then i put up on the board some questions what are we you know where are we going to place this child um what, what are the services are you going to put in place for them next? And they're, they're using the information from the multidisciplinary team where we did the case flow chart. And, and I give them like the options, basically, mm-hmm. that already exist in our community. Um, and then I, the whole class after that, they split up into little teams of um, three-ish. And they have to hash it out. They have to figure out what they're going to do with this kid to keep them safe, to get them the right services and things like that. In their role, from that perspective, Correct. with differing information, yes. with a different agenda, yes. each person. Absolutely. And they got to they gotta hash it out. Yep. But is hashing it out, and for, so this is, for me, the heart of it. Is that a competitive thing or is it a collaborative thing? Like, are you inviting students to um, make connections amongst their different per- – What are you specifically inviting students to do? Because I think that matters. Right. I want there to be friendly collaboration that can overcome a little bit of tension in the agenda. But it depends on the the student and their perspective. I've had law enforcement officers in my class. and Actual, like, people in the profession. And and sometimes they'll, like, be hardcore about that role. And they'll be like, nope. They're doing what the, what I want. You're you're doing what I want you to do. You know, it's it's really interesting. Um, in Miami, our our multidisciplinary team t- it tends to work very well together. They're mm-hmm. they're very collaborative, and um, they have a longer history of knowing each other and knowing how each other works. And so 
there's less tension. But in the beginning, it wasn't like that. I was the one that started these first multidisciplinary team staffings a decade ago. Mm -hmm. And in the beginning, there was tension. You know, there was, I mean, law enforcement would lock up a girl for running away because they didn't want her to run away. They wanted the information about the case, which would make, of course, the process of her cooperating with the case uh, more challenging because she would feel then she was like betrayed by law enforcement. And then I would have to come in and then I would be like an advocate, but then law enforcement would see it as an adversarial thing. But that was, bef you know, we, we've had a learning curve since the early days. Whatever they bring to the table as far as how they're presenting their character, any of that could be true. If right. they, they want to be like hardcore, like, no, I'm not sharing any information with you, law enforcement, you know, because I'm a therapist and I keep all this information secret. There are places in the country where there are therapists doing that. Yeah. So, you know, it's not any kind of thing that you're bringing to the table is going to be something that's held true in multidisciplinary team meetings. And 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 the objective there, if I hear you correctly, yeah. and please correct me if I'm wrong, is that students are becoming more comfortable with the chaos a little bit. Like in order to, you've got a problem, you've got all these different perspectives, they're all coming together in the same place, and it's going to be uncomfortable, and there's going to be some chaos. What is the order here, right? How do we make some kind of an order that is going to be for the good of society and for the good of the individual based on the conflicts and the, and the chaos? And you have to withstand that chaos, and you have to work through it in order to get to the new order, which is that solution. Yeah, there's a lot going on in this process. So that's definitely one of the main goals. And then it's also, how do you take leadership in these groups? You know, how do you um, express your personal influence or leadership and, and engage with the group in a way that you can get the needs met in the way you think, you know? So how do you do that? Um, that's really important. You know, how do you keep the best interests of the child in at the top of the priority list and not let the group get personal. What My whole goal, I tell them, I want to make your life hell. <laughs> <laughs> and then I want to show you, you know, that you are way more capable and competent at handling these situations. You need to see the muck first before you can see, you know, the clear water, right? Mm -hmm. There's that, mm -hmm. that little activity that you could do when you're meditating, right? The, the, the Buddhists say this all the time. It's like you have a jar with mud in it and water, okay? And usually we go about our day shaking that jar. So we can't see through the water because it's all, it's all shook up and it's just a bunch of chaos, like you said, right? Yeah. Um, and we're just reacting all the time because we don't see what's really there. And so if you just actually allow it to sit on a table, you're going to see the mud will settle to the bottom and the water will be clear and you'll be able to see clearly. You'll be mm. able to see through it. And so um, I really want to, I want them to experience the complexity of the issue, the complexity of the people's lives that are impacted by it, the complexity of how stakeholders work together. But also I want them to see how to get to the other side so you can make productive solutions so that you can be helpful. You know, we define global learning with these words. It's a process that engages diverse people and their diverse perspectives in analyzing and addressing complex problems that transcend borders. Nowhere in those words is an explicit acknowledgement of the chaos, the discomfort, the challenge, the emotional, cognitive, disciplinary, practical challenges in doing all of that stuff. And to a certain extent, our conversation right now is making me think, wow, you know, I mean, I guess it's implied or embedded in that, in that term process, but we really need to unpack 
that word. Each of those words is a whole world. It's like a Russian doll of skills and, and dynamics. But that word process, the sorts of things that you're talking about are implied. It's like the colon in the title of your course, right? It's that space between the topic and the solutions. That's that like rough right. place. But inviting that into your course, which is not a traditional take on teaching and learning. That's why global learning as an approach really is a fundamentally different approach than a traditional lecture-based, get the information, spit it out (laughs) course. That's the piece of it, is inviting the chaos and discomfort into the class. But that gets us to solutions and it gets us to a place that I know that your students have gone. You, You said a minute ago that your students sometimes choose the most difficult solution to take in their policy paper. You've had students that have come out of this class or at the end of the class saying, I got to go the next step and it's going to be hard. I Help. <laughs> help me, professor. <laughs> take it to the <laughs> next step. Could you share a little bit about how, what that's looked like and what's happened with your students? Yeah, after we do the um, multidisciplinary team staffing We engage on the issue of best practices and programmatic work that's being done out there. And so the final project, uh, which is the shining star, is the grant proposal. They have to create a program that addresses sex trafficking. And they have to write a grant proposal for it. And then they do a pitch. So, And the pitch we do in front of like a Shark Tank style of judges that actually give them feedback on the spot, which I find really helpful because instead of just getting a grade and never reading the comments on the final exam, um, they actually get the feedback right there, like in front of their face. Just in time, immediate feedback, very impactful. Yeah, Yeah. and so, um, and, and the grant proposal process, of course, they don't know how to write a grant proposal. They don't know how to design a program. They don't know, you know, it's, it's using a creative brain. It's using an organized brain. You know, you have to create something and then you have to organize the information. Um, I've put them in groups. Now that we've learned about multidisciplinary teams, hopefully they can work together better. So you give Um, them another chance to do that really difficult thing. I'm glad to hear that. (laughs) So so they, they work in groups and we go through four skills based classes. One of them is design thinking for social innovation. So we talk all about how to design something that's effective using, you know, some examples of how things can be ineffective, which were, you know, actually really interesting. So um, one of the examples is from the Nandi Foundation in India who wanted to give clean water to this village who their people were getting sick and things like that because they were always drinking from the, the not clean water in the well. And so sounds like a great mission. They go into the village, they create a water treatment plant, they give out um, the, the jugs to the women that are fi- the five gallon jugs and a little card that they have to pay for, which it wasn't extremely expensive, but it was for five gallons a day or something like that. Um, and then they opened and they realized that the women weren't coming to get the water. Right. So that goes it, back to that. It goes back to the, the second component of your course where students are really thinking about the systemic aspects and unintended consequences and also the third component where they do the policy paper. Now they have another chance to see, oh, um, we can use certain thinking processes like design thinking 
that will help us to avoid some of those unintended consequences yeah, and, and pitfalls. And part of this is the, the empathy piece. So why didn't they go? They didn't go because, because women went and got the water during the day, and they had um, been doing that at the well with three-gallon jugs that would actually have a curvature to them to be able to fit on their head or on their, on their hip when they were walking. But the five-gallon jugs that they had were like square or something bulky, and it was too heavy and too, too difficult for them to carry. They would have had their husbands or sons carry them, only they were at work. And by the time they got home from work, the treatment plant was closed. They also didn't need that much water. So they were actually paying for more water than they needed, and they didn't um, want to do that. So there was like a lot of things that missed opportunities. It was a great mission, but they didn't actually engage with the community. And, um, and then it's, you know, when, when I asked them, how do, you, how do you know what people need? What do you do to find out what people need? Um, you know, and they said, oh, you, you ask them, you do a survey or something. And I said, oh, okay. Well, Henry Ford famously said if he would have asked um, the people what they needed, they would have said faster horses. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know, the, the idea being is that it's more than just asking them what they need. You have to get into the community. Participant you observer. You have to yeah. be a participant observer. You have to watch the behavior. You have to th- empathize with them, figure out what they think, um, how they might be feeling, what their behaviors are, why they're doing things, what motivates them, you know, and things like that. So that design thinking process is really eye-opening for people, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so applying that to the issue of sex trafficking and what you think based on everything that you've learned. Um, I also bring in a survivor leader from one of the classes. So they have that firsthand experience. And and um, this person, Shanika Ampa, she's awesome. She has her own, she's working as a, um, she's, first of all, she's, has her own organization, Guiding Light Outreach. She also is a survivor advocate or victim advocate at the Thrive Clinic at UM, which specializes in healthcare, providing healthcare to victims of trafficking. Um, and so she has, so not only does she have a story of being exploited in Miami as a child, but she's also overcome. She's um, gone on to become very successful. And she knows what my vision is for the class. So when she's in, in the class speaking, she engages the students with their ideas too, so that they're getting feedback directly from her. So she's really a community partner for your course. Yeah. And then they, they go on and they create the grants. I have two classes talking about how to write grant proposals. Um, we go step by step, even the budget, you know, and it's all new. Like some of them don't even budget personal. Yeah. You know? So, uh, and then we have a whole class dedicated to learning how to pitch. And I give them uh, really great presentation tools, like new, you know, some of these new platforms and things like that that are coming out that are really easy to use and beautiful. Yeah. Um, so I give them all of those tools so that they can come up with a fantastic. Like Prezi pitch. or things no, like that? No, it's not even like. So there's a new one. Share I love it. sharing. I love sharing, but, you know, part of me is like, I don't want to share this one. Um, oh. No, it, it's actually called beautiful.ai. Oh. And when I tell you this is the easiest and literally most beautiful presentation maker that I have ever seen, like Prezi is ridiculously complicated compared to this one. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's really amazing. I'm, I have 
generated myself, I've generated like at least 30 presentations oh my gosh, in the I'm past so, year. I'm going to go right back to it. Look it up. We'll definitely link to it in the show notes. Sorry, the, yeah, world, yeah. the word is out. The word is out. Uh, they were still in beta last year, so I don't know if they're going to start charging next year. Okay. Well, I mean, I'm not surprised that you're sharing this tool with us because yeah. I just have to say that it is a little bit mind-blowing how many things are in this course. And I didn't really anticipate us going there or that being a big takeaway from this interview, but the the course is it's psychology, it's civics, it's public speaking, it's budgeting, it's writing, it's it's it ah uh, I'm sure the listeners are saying, yeah, but it's also X and Y and Z and P and but, <laughs> but yeah. that's what you have to do for solution making. So you you have to do it so you're bringing it in. Yeah, so creating solutions is is all of those aspects. Mm-hmm. You know, you really have to be able to dive into those. And and I do it not just to um, do a service to the issue, which I believe that I do, but I also do it because I feel like I'm doing a service to my students. Mm-hmm. I feel like in in the process, what they're learning are valuable skills that are going to help them in the future, even life skills, you know. And I don't want to get us too off track. I want to continue speaking about this final project. But one thing I do want to say is this. I can imagine some people listening to this might be thinking, okay, I I teach a course already in a social issue. And I would like to go in this direction. But I don't have the personal background or the skill set that Sandy does, right? Like maybe I don't have a background in design thinking. Maybe I don't have um, the budget piece. Or maybe when I think about it, I think, well, what you're doing is you're you're pulling back the curtain on all of these embedded skills. And I could imagine that a faculty member saying I want to go there could reach out to other people in the community or in the institution to help bring to give some lessons, right? You could invite somebody from maybe if there's an in, a new innovation uh, startup or a think tank at your institution or in, in the community to come in and do a, a design thinking lesson, right? I think it's really helpful that you're pulling back the curtain on all the embedded skills that you see, but at the same time, one person, one teacher doesn't have to have all of those skill sets within them. You could make a team. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah you can... I mean, and that's the point too, is engaging the community. So I had, I mean, I have a couple of classes where I am bringing community members in, like four or five of my classes. So because just like with the multidisciplinary team that the students are on, you bring one piece of it and, and we need to invite other perspectives. This is part of global learning. We need to invite those other perspectives, the other pieces to the puzzle into the classroom. Okay, I think that's just an important point because it might sound overwhelming. Wow, this woman, she's amazing. She can do it because she's superwoman, (laughs) but I can't do it because I'm not super person. No, you know, I have a very unique skill set too because I I have started programs and businesses and things like that you know so I I've lived in the in the I've worked in the field directly I've done the case management myself I've coordinated the multidisciplinary teams you know I have a a long history of all of that kind of program development work in the field so for me it's second nature to be able to discuss it at that level Um, but you know there's there's also a place for you know advanced theory right you know and it just really depends on your, your course, really. And I think on the flip side, for those listeners who might be coming from the professions and have an opportunity or would like to have an opportunity to teach 
in higher ed, whether it be at the college level or at the university level, you're also giving a case study for how a professional could bring their skill set to the classroom in a legitimate way that is also educationally, it's effective. Because what you are doing is following the best practices in teaching and learning, taking students through iteratively deeper and deeper connection making. You're bringing their, you're providing the background knowledge, giving an applied, a chance to apply it. Providing more background knowledge, another Mm -hmm. chance to apply. So it's a layered sequence. So we're, we have arrived and we're, we're still at this piece where um, they're doing the design thinking to write the grant. You do some work on grant writing. You do some work on pitching. And then they, they do the pitch. Yeah. So we get together with Startup FIU at the end for our final day. Um, and then in the main space, I throw them to the sharks, basically. <laughs> and who are the sharks? <laughs> um, so I engage a panel of judges, you know, between – um, three or three or four judges and they they could be the same or they could be different I don't know you want to be a judge this year I do okay. always okay. want to be a judge you've invited <laughs> me in the past and I haven't been able to do it and so one of my colleagues yeah. has done it so I gotta get it on the calendar yeah so I'm I mix it up between people that have um that have an expertise in like startup um, processes you know that whole pitch um, like business planning kind of stuff. Uh, also tr- experts in trafficking, like maybe somebody that understands that. So this year we've already, I've already recruited Andrew Pompa, who is now at FIU, uh, a startup FIU, but I know him from the community, from the startup work and uh, through Radical Partners and things like that. So oh, he's and I been, can see the excitement on your face. Oh, I love, I love that he's already agreed to be my judge. Um, so He's already had the experience of judging uh, and, you know, working together with a lot of different actual organizations in our community that are doing social impact work. So I'm excited that he said yes. I also have Laurencia Dominguez coming. Oh. And, um, and she's, she's fairly new at FIU also, but I also know her from the community because yes. she has had many years of experience providing services to trafficking victims and survivors. Okay, can, can so. I just jump in with yes. something about Florencia? Because Florencia was a student at FIU she took a global learning course on this topic. There was a guest speaker from International Rescue Committee. Mm-hmm. She got an internship. They offered her a job. She worked there. And when the IRC went through some changes, yep. she had the opportunity to come back to FIU. She's now working in the Office of Global Learning Initiatives. Yep. And so it's like a full circle thing with Florencia to see the impact that it had, global learning had on her life, and then now her opportunity to really magnify that to however many thousands and thousands fold. Yeah, so super no, I, exciting. I love that she's here and I love that she's a part of it. And she, get, you know, she was a judge um, last semester too, and it was very exciting for her to see the ideas that are coming out of um, the brains of these university students, you know. And, and that's really, uh, that's really an, an incredible thing to watch also because I've seen, you know, hundreds of organizations come up around the country that works on trafficking issues. Um, I've done consulting for a lot of them that have done, you know, that that have started up. And to see where the, what we, the so-called 
beginner mind mm -hmm. to see where the beginner mind takes you is really interesting. I've just had amazing proposals coming from these students. I mean, they they blow me away every single time. Like even if I feel like they're struggling on their policy paper and I tell them, look, your policy paper, you might not do as well as you want to do because it's a new skill for you and it's hard, you know, um, and that's fine. I, I'm, I grade it fairly, but I also grade it, I don't, you know. Generously, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but when it comes to the end, by the time that they create their program, it's just the, the, what they can put together, the innovation that they think of, you know, I mean, it's just amazing. I, I want to make some kind of like, uh, I don't know, I want to put it all together, like a compendium or something, like Ooh. make some kind of, write yeah. something about like all the ideas that they've that well, they've come to the can, table with. We can do a little bit of yeah. that with the scholarship of teaching and learning or who yeah. knows. Yeah, let's let's think about that. I, I, I hate to, for it to just kind of sit in my drawer, right. all these great ideas, you know. But some of the ideas haven't sat in your drawer. You had students that you mentored to the next level. Yeah. <laughs> so this is a really fascinating story, actually. So last year I had two students. They were actually in different groups. They were They were assigned to different groups. And... They both were creating their organization called that they called Heart, mm -hmm. and randomly, they did not know. They just both named it the same. They both thing. named it the same thing. They did not know. They called it Heart, and then one of them was focused on education, uh, and the other one was focused on healthcare. But both had a kind of idea that they wanted to do training and things like that. So I sat them before they were done. Like at the end of the semester, I sat them down together for a meeting and I said, you named yours heart and it's focused on training educators. You named yours heart and it's focused on training healthcare. And I think that that's, there's a lot of synergy in that and that didn't happen on accident and you two should meet and think about doing this together. And because they both wanted to, they were both actually thinking about doing it for real, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know? So I was like, you know, this, this is, is not a, random, yeah. you know, so I put them together. And it turns out that they got along great. They became co-founders. They named their one organization Heart Initiative. And then I did an independent study with them the following semester to help them launch. So we went through all of the process of um, launching. Uh, now they have their members at the Center for Social Change. They have their, which is also their fiscal sponsor, so that they can accept donations and things like that. They improved on the grant proposal, you know, collaborating the two missions, um, and then also created a new pitch um, presentation that they did, uh, focusing on. So the Heart Initiative is focused on providing training and education uh, around the issue of human trafficking to educators and to healthcare workers. So Alyssa Pepio is the education side because she has been a City Year Corps member and, um, you know, that's her expertise and all of her connections are in, in City Year. And then um, Jennifer Amartafio is a nurse and she has all these connections in the healthcare field with her company that she works for and everything too. So the two of them brought this amazing, you know, background and energy to this work and they created this organization. Um, they asked me to be on the board. I said, yes. Uh, we also got Shanika to be on the board. So now Shanika Ampa is a survivor leader is on the board. So we have survivor led um, organization. 
and they have been getting um, like demand for presentations and trainings from all over because Shanika is also helping uh, speak and do trainings. And they have beautiful presentations. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so the presentations are unlike any that we usually see in the field. They have pictures and graphics, and they're very, very visually stunning. Um, in addition to, they have the expertise on the ground, and they've been invited into many partnerships already. We have a, um, a recent law in Florida that mandates nurses to get training. And they can provide it. And they can provide it now. So it's also earned income for them because they get paid to do these trainings as well. So uh, with that pitch and their their kind of final uh, design of their program, they entered it into FIU's uh, social challenge grant through the Center for Leadership, Mm -hmm. and they won. So they won a (laughs) $7,500 startup uh, seed funding. Beautiful. Um, and then since then, they've also been able to raise uh, additional money towards the towards their mission. And this is the great connection making that can happen in a, in a university um, because Center for Leadership and Service is in the kind of the student affairs side of the academic and student affairs house. You're in the academic affairs side of the house. We're an Ashoka institution, so social innovation, education is something that we value and, and are supporting and, and all across the curriculum and in the co-curriculum as well and with community partnerships. I mean, you really, you put it all together in this course. So it's so, and and it's, it's putting together your personal drive and your professional expertise and, and bringing it to the classroom. There's so much integration of you, it seems, Sandy, which is kind of taking us back to where we began, like you as a human being. This course seems to be a manifestation of who you are in, in the fullness of who you are, the holistic. It's like global Sandy. <laughs> I want to ask as just kind of a way of, of, of coming to a close, although I could talk to you forever. How is global learning in this experience, creating this course, how has it impacted you as a, as a person? You know, it's, I learn a lot by being around the students. Um, I, I see strategically, I'm a, I'm a strategic thinker, and I can see strategically into the future from kind of where they're at right now. So I've, I've taught this for several years now, uh, I think I'm on my fourth year here. And my class size has grown exponentially. I mean, it's it's gone from like eight or 10 people to now I flooded with 78 students just on MMC campus this year. So I have 100 students if you count both campuses. And every semester, the feedback I get, the engagement that I hear, like their thought processes, it's so fascinating how this culture has been changing and this new generation, we're gonna see some very different policy coming up in the future. There's no better way to, to predict that than to engage with the topic of sex. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and the sex industry, sex work, sex trafficking, um, how all of, all of those things you know, mix together. And, you know, there's a couple of fascinating things that I, I always ask them to raise your hand if whatever, so I can get like a sense of the room. There was a couple of fascinating things that came up. One of them was the government should be able to spy on corporations electronically to make sure that they're not engaging in human rights abuses. Wow. Um, almost all my students. Yeah. I was very impacted by that. It wasn't like half and half. It was, it was a lot um, because there's that sense of we don't have privacy anymore anyway. 
Ah. And that new generation is kind of willingly giving up um, privacy and also not growing up in a, in a, in a world where their freedoms um, the, feel like that there's an imminent threat to their freedoms. So they're growing up with a sense of freedom um, and then with this sense of it doesn't, privacy doesn't matter anyway. Um, you don't have anything to hide. Uh, if you don't have anything to hide, then, you know. Right. Whatever, kind of thing. Giving up privacy in order to gain safety. Yeah. But it was very it was interesting how many, you know. And then, um, and then the other thing is their attitude around sex work mm-hmm. and the sex industry in general. And most of the students are very much pro-decriminalization of the sex industry for consenting adults, um, possibly even legalization. So there's very much a more openness about people being able to just engage in whatever sex they want as long as it's consensual, mm-hmm. you know. And I think that there, these two, um, those two, oh, there was another thing too, is like this idea that being okay with very punitive measures mm-hmm. In general, mm-hmm. you know, let's just throw the book at everybody. Let's just legislate, you know. So I thought that the combination of all that was really interesting, you know. So I, I start engaging around that when I talk to them too, kind of like, well, what's the slippery slope? Like, what happens if we do engage in that kind of policy? But it is eye opening, it's enlightening because thinking about how that's going to be, how's that going to look in the future when they're making the decisions? One thing I know for sure is that, I mean, I guess I'm reading into the future a little bit too, <laughs> in that, you know, we are an anchor institution. The majority of our students will probably go on to lead their pre- professional and personal lives in South Florida. And you are creating, I don't want to use a, you know, a violent image, but an army or, a, you know, a cadre of, of champions for, um, for tackling this issue in in South Florida and beyond. And so, you know, I want to thank you for this interview, but I have to thank you as a citizen of (laughs) South Florida because the issue touches all of our lives in direct and many, many indirect ways. And this is a beautiful manifestation of what the mission of our institution is, which is to exchange and create new knowledge, but also to serve our community. And I guess on that note, I just want to say thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Making Global Learning Universal. This podcast is brought to you by FIU's Office of Global Learning Initiatives, Media Technology Services, and our Disability Resource Center. You can find all our episodes, show notes, transcripts, and discussion guides on our webpage, globallearningpodcast.fiu.edu. And if this episode was meaningful to you, please share it with colleagues, friends, and students. You can even give it a rating on iTunes. Thanks again for tuning in and for all you do to make global learning universal.